0: We are in this series called My Big Fat Mouth, and I have been conflicted this week um, because I've heard so many great comments about this series and what you guys are learning from it and what you're gaining from it, and um, I had prepared a message to speak, but I also, many of you know, I just got back from a trip to Africa with World Vision and um, learned so many things there, and I've had quite a few people, maybe four or five from this campus and maybe even a dozen from uh, the Carmel campus ask, hey, when do we get to hear about your trip? And so I had started to prepare a message for the My Big Fat Mouth series, and I feel like the Spirit kind of convicted me to talk about what I learned in Africa. And so are you guys okay if I kind of switch gears away from this for a week and do that? I think the Spirit said to do that. Paul's on vacation, so I can do whatever the heck I want, right? So, um, But what I want to do is I thought I'd just give you like a two-minute version of the message I prepared about profanity. Is that cool? Because um, I had been preparing for this because I think it's something that's... Um, It's something that I've noticed as a pastor that a lot of people who are Christians use profanity, uh, use harsh language a lot of times, and uh, what Jesus says about that is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That when we use harsh language and profanity, it's not a mouth problem, it's a heart problem. So what do we do when we have a heart problem? Well, Proverbs says, above all else, you should what? Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. How do you guard your heart? Well, a guard at a door is somebody who stands at the door and doesn't let things in that shouldn't be in, right? So above all else, we should guard our heart. So how does stuff get in your heart? Well, it mostly comes in through your eyes and through your ears. It's what you see and what you hear, what you watch and what you listen to. And so if we change what we watch and what we listen to, we will change what's in our heart, and we can get rid of this heart disease that causes us to speak harsh language. And so uh, change what you listen to. If you have a profanity problem, change what you listen to, change what you watch on TV, change the movies you go see, and you'll be amazed how your heart will change and what comes out of your mouth will change. Good? Can we pray and just go home now? All right? (laughs) See, that would have taken me 30 minutes on a normal Sunday, and you got it in less than two. So instead, what I want to do is I want to talk about running for Africa. This is just kind of a summary. I've got some pictures. It's almost like... Um, Back in the day, if you're my age, you know that when somebody got back from vacation, you'd go over to their house and they'd show you their slides from vacation, right? You get to the slideshow. That's kind of what this is. So I'm sorry if it's boring to you, but I think I learned some things that are going to be really cool. Um, What happened was last fall, I ran the monumental marathon with Team World Vision uh, to raise money for clean water. And some of you, anybody in the room doing that this fall, marathon, half marathon, good. Good for you guys. Give them a round of applause. That's great. (laughs) That's awesome. That's how it starts. I just want you to know, if you signed up to run a half marathon and you think you're stopping at 13 miles, where it ends is running 56 miles through the hills of Africa. So just so you know, I got a call from World Vision. I had um, run this marathon. I was uh, doing a pretty good job of fundraising. They were encouraged. And they asked, hey, would you like to come to Africa with us next spring, next summer, and run the Comrades Marathon?" Um, and uh, I, being a longtime runner, distance runner, I knew a little bit about Comrades. I had read about it. In fact, it had been a dream race of mine for about 15 years. Now, what you, know, you need to know about Comrades is it's called a marathon, but it's not really a marathon. It's really an ultra marathon. Whereas a, a typical marathon is 26.2 miles, Comrades is 56 miles. And so I did what any of you would have done if somebody called and asked if you would go to Africa to run 56 miles. I said, yes! Right, that's what you'd say, right? Right, Maybe not. Uh, I was very excited to uh, go on this trip. Comrades, as I said, is 56 miles. It runs from a, town, a city called Peter Maritzburg uh, down to Durban. Durban is on the coast on the Indian Ocean of uh, South Africa. Peter Maritzburg is at about 2,000 feet of elevation. And, and Comrades started in 1921. And it was started by some World War I veterans who were looking for a way to memorialize their brothers that were fallen in battle, their comrades. That had fallen in battle and they lived in Durban and they decided that they would, to just remember their friends, they would run up to Peter Maritzburg as a way of remembering their fallen comrades. And then the next year they decided, hey, what if we reversed it? What if we started in Peter Maritzburg and ran down to Durban? And so that's what they did and that's how it started in 1921. And other than a few years in World War II where they took a break, it's been running ever since. So it's the world's oldest ultra-marathon. It's also probably the most famous, it's definitely the biggest, 21,400 people registered for this race to run 56 miles. And the way it works now is they alternate directions every year. So one year they'll run from Durban up to Peter Maritzburg, that's called the uprun. run. The, this year it was from Peter Maritzburg down to Durban, it's called the Downrun. Now two things you need to know about the down run. First of all, the down run is always a little bit longer. It's about two miles longer. They do that so that the times are about equivalent when you run an uprun or a downrun. The second thing you need to know about the downrun is even though it's called a downrun, it's two thousand feet net downhill, but it's five thousand feet of elevation and seven thousand feet down. So even on the down run, you still have five thousand feet or a mile of climbing to do. And so uh changes direction every year, like I said. So this is the down run elevation. Now, one of the cool things about comrades is there are a ton of traditions. Uh, around it. And one of those traditions is the starting line. This is at Peter Meritzburg, um at the City Hall, 5 30 in the morning, 21,000 people gathered. They sing this song called Shoshaloza as part of the starting line. Uh, you can hear this. So if you know anything about history, about the history of South Africa, you know that especially in the 80s and 90s, well, for many years, um, they had a system of government called apartheid. And what would happen is the black South Africans would be the ones that did most of the manual labor. They had the manual labor jobs. They were oppressed by the white minority government. And so the blacks were the ones who would work in the mines and work the very difficult, dirty jobs. And uh, they would sing this song. This is a Zulu word, Shoseloza. They would sing this song on the way uh, to their job in the mines. Shoshaloza means uh, we will run. The song, the lyrics of the song are translated roughly as we will run from these mountains on the train to South Africa. And so to hear 21,000 people sing this song, and uh, in a minute here, I'll turn around and you'll be able to see. Uh, the number of people behind me, there's actually about three times as many people behind me as in front of me. And so to hear this crowd of 21,000 people sing this song, this, like, this worker song, I mean, you could almost equate, equate it to the song We Will Overcome in America, right? So this is a big emotional moment. And so after Shoshaloza, they play uh, the Chariots of Fire theme like you do if you're running, right? You got to listen to Chariots of Fire. And then uh, a rooster crows over the loudspeaker. And then at exactly 5.30 in the morning, they fire a cannon, which is about the loudest thing you've ever heard. And the clock starts and we start running. I tried to capture a picture of what the terrain was like. This is about an hour into the race. So 6.30 in the morning, the sun is just starting to come up. Uh, we have been running for an hour. When you try to take a picture while you're running, it turns out blurry. So sorry for that. But this is uh, one of the hills. We're running down a hill called Poly Shorts. uh, The the people who have run, comrades many times, those who are native to South Africa, will claim that there are five hills on the course. They're lying. There are about 50 hills on the course. Five of them have names. Uh, This is one of the most famous ones. It's called Poly Shorts. Fortunately, since it's a down run, we got to run down Poly Shorts, which is about a mile and a half of um, pretty steep elevation loss. But you can see it's beautiful. The sun is coming up. And one of the things that we noticed uh, about this race is that there is almost no flats. It's almost You're almost always going down or going up, but it's a beautiful course. Um, it's uh, all on roads, and all the roads are closed, so you don't have to deal with traffic or anything like that. But it's uh, really fantastic. I wanted to give you an idea of the terrain here. Now, one of the things that's really neat is along this course, uh, World Vision has a presence. So I traveled with World Vision. Uh, there were... Uh, 70 of us in all that were there for the comrades race, and then we broke up into smaller teams later to go to some different countries. Um, but World Vision has a presence in South Africa. This is a school along the course, uh, and even though it's Sunday, all the kids from the school came out to cheer and to hand out water and to hand out Coke and apparently to suck a lollipop as one kid is doing there. Um, but across from the, the school, there is a World Vision tent, and they, they told us the day before the race that World Vision has a tent at halfway, notice I'm using air quotes, at halfway where you can put any food that you wanna have for halfway through the race or if you wanna not carry, like I used a lot of gels that you uh, eat while you're running. And if you wanna not carry all that with you, you can put it in a bag and at halfway, they'll give it to you. So I got to this. Unfortunately, it's only at about 35K So if you do your math, that's about a third of the way in. But I get through the race, I get to this school, I see the World Vision tent, I run over and I grab my bag, which I had meticulously prepared with Pringles, because I thought that would be fantastic after running a marathon. Um, Twizzlers, the cherry pool and peel kind, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, and the rest of my gels and some other stuff. And so I go over, I'm running in, I go over to the World Vision tent. One of the beautiful ladies from World Vision South Africa is there. She hands me my bag right as I'm running. I go to sit down on a chair to open my bag and get out the Pringles. And she goes, no, you cannot sit. You have to go. You have to run. I'm like, well, i I kind of planned on taking a break here, but, you know, it is only 35K. We're not at halfway, and I guess, so I, I grab my bag, and I start walking down the road, and I open my Pringles, and I'm like, what am I going to do with these now? I can't eat these while I'm running. So I grab a stack like that. Do you know how hard it is to eat a stack of Pringles that big and not go back for more? You guys know, right? Can I get an amen on that? Um, and so I grab this little stack of Pringles. I go through my bag. I grab all of my gels and shove them in my pocket. Um, I look at my Twizzlers, well, I'm not going to eat those because I can't eat those on the run. And so I hand the Pringles to these kids uh, at the school, um, and they're excited. And I hand my Twizzlers over to them, and I keep running. So um, that was halfway through, or not halfway through, about a third of the way through. I'm feeling pretty good at that point. But here's the cool thing about World Vision that I learned. World Vision is not a global A organization, as many people think it is. That when I think about World Vision and I think about um, Richard Stearns, the president of World Vision, I think he's like over all of World Vision, but that's not true. He's over World Vision U.S., and there is an equal counterpart in South Africa. His name is Noah. We met Noah while we were over there, um, and Noah is the head of World Vision South Africa, and he and Richard Stearns are peers Um, And, in fact, they say that World Vision is held together, together with a handshake, a hug, and the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. It's a bunch of national organizations that have just agreed to work together. And that was really cool. And what's really cool about it is World Vision has two kinds of offices in these countries. There are support offices, which basically raise funds for field work. So the U.S. is a support office of World Vision. Um, Ethiopia is a field office, they do the work and So there's support offices raise money, field offices do the work World Vision South Africa is the first office in World Vision history To transition from a field office that does the work to a support office Isn't that cool? So they actually raise more money than they spend in country now And so it was cool to get to meet with some of their staff And see the school, see some of the work that they're doing This is early in our trip, obviously Um, And so uh, that was really cool Uh, I mentioned that one of the neat things about comrades is traditions, and one of the most uh, exciting but difficult traditions is the finish line because they have a very hard and fast cutoff of this race of 12 hours. So you have 12 hours to run 56 miles uh, in this case. And what happens is at the finish line, um, runners are coming in to the finish line, and there's a guy at 12 hours that stands with his back to the runners as they're coming in and a starter's pistol And at 12 hours and zero seconds, he fires the starter's pistol. Bang! And security guards stream across the finish line, holding hands, and prevent anyone else from finishing. It's heartbreaking. You have 12 hours to finish. And so as a result, people tend to push themselves a little harder. They tend to probably run faster than they should. And I love that Comrades has a sense of humor in our packet where we picked up our numbers. They gave you this. Uh, Old Mutual's funeral plan, so if the whole running comrades thing doesn't work out for you, at least you know who to call. Um, But despite the tight cutoffs, despite um, the fear that comes with running 26 miles, despite all of that, I did manage to finish the race in 11 hours, 44 minutes, and 44 seconds. (laughs) Thank you. I have to say, though, it was... was, um, I was just barely beaten by the leader by about six hours and 18 minutes. Uh, it was it was nip and tuck for a while, but uh, he in the end, he uh, he he got me on the line. Um, the winner five hours and 26 minutes. That's about a 550 mile for 56 miles, if you can imagine that, if you can imagine. Um, what I had done was I had planned to, uh, the whole time, because everybody had told me about the hills and I knew, and it's supposed to be hot. It was actually beautiful weather that day. It was a low of 49 at the starting line, high of 71. It was perfect running weather. It was the coldest comrades on record, is what they said, um, which was perfect for me. Um, but the hills were uh, just unbelievable. And so I had decided from the beginning I was going to uh, walk all the uphills And I was going to run the downs and the flats. And that's what I did for 42 miles. 42 miles, I kept a constant pace. You can see through Pine Town there, 68.8 kilometers. I'd pretty much kept a seven and a half to or so per kilometer, which is about 11 minute per mile pace uh, the whole time. And then at 42 miles, my calves started to cramp up and I couldn't run the flats anymore. So I was only running the downs. I was walking the flats and the ups. And then at 90K, when I got into Durban, um, my calves were completely locked up. I could not take two steps running. And so I had to walk the last 10K, but the whole time I'm watching, looking at my watch, knowing they have a, a marker every kilometer, so you know how far you've got to go to the finish, and I had no doubt I was going to finish, um, but it was really cool. The finish is at uh, Moses-Bahibda Stadium, which is a soccer stadium that was built for the World Cup. It houses about 50,000 people, and it's, it was about half full for the finish which was really cool to run in the stadium and see 20,000 people standing and cheering. And because I was so close to the end of the race, I mean, 16 minutes to go when I got into the stadium, um, people were cheering, it got loud, and it gets louder, and it gets louder, and it gets louder up until 12 hours. And at 12 hours, the gun fires, and it gets dead silent. If you can imagine 20,000 people in this stadium, and it's getting louder, 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 boom! It's almost like somebody let the air out of the stadium. It's incredible to see uh, the heartbreak of people who didn't get to finish Uh, 25 of our 28 that ran the race finished. We had 42 spectators that were there. Um, Now, the cool thing was because we're international runners, we had to pay a higher fee to get in. This race is like $10 if you live in South Africa, and it's 200 if you're an international runner. This is crazy. But uh, because we're international, we got access to the international area, which is cool because it's right by the finish line in the first couple rows of stands. But the hard part is they don't let you just walk up into the stands. You actually have to walk up all the way up to the concourse, and then walk all the way back down to the international level. So, if you can just imagine this with me, imagine you run down to Lucas Oil Stadium from here, run the whole way. You're about—that's about halfway, almost halfway, by the way, of what we ran. So, run down to Lucas Oil Stadium, and when you get there, they say, "Oh, will you just walk up to the concourse and then walk back down the stairs, and then you can take a break?" Uh, that's what they did. It was crazy, but. Um, Legs were sore. The hotel was uh, right near the finish line that we stayed in. It was right on the Indian Ocean. It was beautiful. And so it was full of comrades runners. So everybody the next day is doing this when they're walking around breakfast. And so we had a rest day. Um, what did I do the next day while I rested? This is a shot. I had my feet soaking in the pool, which was very cold. And I leaned back and I looked at the hotel. I thought, oh, that's a nice picture. Snap. <laughs> that was about how much energy I had the next day. Um, And so the idea behind this race, you run 56 miles, was to bring awareness to World Vision's child sponsorship program. I tried to get um, 56 kids sponsored, which um, I'm 48, I think, right now, which is cool. Thanks to you guys for your help, uh, those of you who sponsored a child. Um, But uh, I want to talk about the work I got to see in the field because our team went to Ethiopia to get to see some really cool work. But I thought I'd pause right there. This is a little different than what we usually do. But I thought I'd ask, does anybody have any questions about the race? Um, I'm going to have to do this again at Carmel, and if you have questions, that might help me form what I'm going to say to them. So, do you have anything you want to know? Yeah, Lily? Would I do it again? Somebody asked that in the first service. Uh, no. Well, I would, but I'm not going to. Um, and what I mean by that is, this has been a dream race of mine. It's something I've wanted to do, like I said, for 15 years. And uh, now that you've done it, it's like, I don't want it to be that thing that I do all the time. Like, I'm the guy that runs Comrades every year, you know what I mean? And so, If you're a golfer, for instance, and you get the chance to play Pebble Beach, and somebody says, will you go back and play Pebble Beach again? Well, you might, but man, there's so many other great golf courses out there, and so if you're a runner, there's so many other great races out there that I would love to do, and one of the things that this race did for me was really open my eyes to what I'm capable of, because um, when I finished the Monumental Marathon in November, I had already signed up for this race, and I thought, there's no way I can run 56 miles, and so I had to basically build a runner that can run 56 miles. And through prayers and through uh, training, uh, I was able to do that. And so it really opened my eyes to what, I'm, what, what the human body is capable of. So there's more races out there that I never thought I could do that now maybe I think I can. So. Anything else? Yes. Trish. Trish. Hi, Trish. How 19,000-some finish? uh, uh, finished out of the 21,000. Um, You do have to qualify for this race by running a five-hour marathon, and so most of the people they know are capable of running that kind of distance, but uh, 23,500 signed up of those 21,400 qualified by running a marathon, and out of those, about 19,000 or so finished the race. I was in 14,000th place, if that gives you an idea. I was not in the front of the pack, Um, but I really, my goal was just to take it in and enjoy the ride, so. Anything else? One other thing? One other question? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm gonna talk about, she asked, Sydney asked if I was able to see anything done by World Vision. So in South Africa, really the only thing we got to see was the school and we ran by it. But I'm gonna talk about that next. That's a great transition, Sydney. Thank you so much for that. Um, I wanna just tell you this though, something that really occurred to me as I had my rest day and I was thinking about, okay, what have I learned from the race portion of this trip? It was this, I live way too much of my life vicariously through other people. On my phone, looking at social media, reading about the exploits of other people. And I realized that maybe a much better way to live my life is every once in a while to do something that scares the crap out of me. Because the night before this race, I was bawling. I was in tears, literally crying, because I thought, God, why am I here? Why am I doing this? I don't know what this, I, there was so much uncertainty and unknown and can I do it? Can I finish? And the Lord spoke to me very clearly and gave me a verse from Esther uh, where, he told, where uh, Mordecai to- tells Esther, uh, it might be for just such a time as this that you're here. And for me, what that meant was, you know what? If I hadn't signed up for that race, somebody else would run in my place if i hadn't gone on that trip somebody else would go if i hadn't sponsored our, if our family hadn't sponsored our child that we sponsor in ethiopia somebody else would sponsor that child but for me the lord had something and i really think sydney thanks for asking that question because i really think one of the things the lord had for me was to share with you guys and share with our church the work that world vision is doing over in africa so let me say that. The real purpose of this trip was not running, even though that was the hook. Uh, the real purpose was to go to see the work that World Vision is doing in Africa. So on Tuesday, we flew from Durban to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And then we took um, some, some cars and we started driving. And we drove a couple of hours to a place called Bowie. This is the first place we stopped. Um, this is a, outside of a preschool. And we were greeted with singing and dancing and cheering. And these women are carrying these baskets of food that they would made for us. And um, they put scarves around our necks, and they brought us Cokes and water and treated us like royalty. And we had no idea why when we got there. Uh, And what we saw was pretty amazing. We walked in, we saw this preschool that World Vision had helped fund, and there were kids learning to read in this preschool. And I say learning to read because you may notice that their books are upside down. (laughs) But you started somewhere too, right? I mean, you had to learn to read and um, they're, they're, they're reading and they're playing games and they're learning to do crafts and they're doing things like that. And in this classroom with about 40 kids, there was one young woman, this woman in the yellow shirt, who was uh, probably in her late 20s and she was the preschool teacher and she had complete control in that room. I have no idea how she does it. My wife's a fifth grade teacher. She had 13 students this year and every once in a while it was chaos in that room. There are 40 preschool kids in this room and she has complete control in that room. If you ever want to know how to control preschoolers, go to Ethiopia and then go to this school in Bowie and see what she's doing because I have no idea, but she's doing a great job. But that's not why they were celebrating us when we arrived there as part of World Vision. They were celebrating us because last fall, World Vision put in a water access point at this preschool in Bowie. Now, prior to this water access point being there, the closest natural source of water was about three kilometers or 1.8 miles away from this preschool. And there are several houses in a neighborhood right around this preschool. And many of the women and girls would have to walk three kilometers each way to get their water every day. We talked to a woman called Tefana. Tefana is part of the water committee. I'll talk about that in a minute. The water committee decides um, uh, who, when the water point gets opened and, and how many people for how long and who gets access to it. And uh, World Vision does this every time they put in a water access point. So Tefana was one, of the who was one of the women who was dancing with the baskets in her hand. And Tefana is the principal of this preschool. And Tefana told us the story of how she used to have to walk three kilometers each way to get water. And she would carry two of these jerry cans like these you see here that are five gallons. They weigh about 40 pounds when they're full. And she would carry two of these jerry cans twice a day to uh, th- to get water uh, that was not the cleanest water. It would have come out of a pond much like this and would have been dirty. Now, they will boil this before they cook it, uh, before they drink it, but they will cook with it. They will wash dishes with it. They do laundry with it. And this was three kilometers away, and Tefana would have to walk down these roads that are uh, covered in dirt. They're dirt roads. And she would walk down these dirt roads, and over rough terrain, this canyon, we actually had to cross this canyon to get to the preschool. It's about 30 feet deep. And uh, she would have to walk these roads to get her water every day for her family to drink and cook with and do dishes with and do laundry with. And Tefano would tell about how her feet would get really dirty and dusty and how her face would get dusty. And because of the dust, her face dried out and it would start to crack and her face would actually bleed. And as I watched the story, I watched this beautiful 40-something-year-old woman sit and tell us the story about this with a perfect, flawless complexion. (laughs) And she said last fall that all changed when World Vision brought clean water to the school. And now I only have to walk a few hundred meters to get water, and it's clean, and I know it's safe. And she said, "Um, I've got my dignity back because her face is clear, and she doesn't have to walk through the dirt anymore to get her water. And she said, I'm learning to live like a new person, like a new creation. And in that moment, it hit me that this is not just about clean drinking water, that this is a lifestyle thing for people. This is, this is about their life. It's almost about their identity and who they are. When they get clean water and it's close to them, it changes what they can do with the rest of their time. It changes how little girls can now go to school instead of having to walk to get water during the day. It changes what women can do for their families and what they can do for work because they no longer have to spend two hours a day going to get water and more hours caring for their skin. It was pretty amazing to see the work that was doing there. In fact, our team got to uh, experience a water walk. We uh, took several of these jerry cans down to a lake and we filled them up and we had to carry them out of the lake that was about 15 feet uh, sunken into the ground and it had rained the night before so the bank was muddy and we're walking with uh, two 40 pound -pound cans up the banks of this river and uh, we only carried them about 300 yards but we were worn out when we got done and it just gave me new respect for these women and girls that have to carry this water one of the really cool things that we got to see was over the past um, four years since uh Bowie and the other camp we went to Shishogo, have been uh, around the access to clean water and what they when they define access they mean something within a kilometer of your house access to clean water um, has gone from 35 percent to about 68 percent in the last four years in these areas World Vision is the largest provider of clean water in the world. And it's just amazing to see uh, the work that's been done there. Uh, when World Vision, I mentioned the water committee. When World Vision puts in a water access point, they appoint a, uh, they, the town, the people, appoint a water committee. And this is four or five people who are elders of the town. There may be government officials or, or uh, school principals, things like that, who have access to the water. They have a key to the gate, and they have uh, the kind of spigot handle that turns um, the water on and that committee decides for their community when you get access to the water and how for how long. The other thing that they do is, they um, it's not just about clean water, that they have a committee they call the WASH committee. WASH stands for Water Sanitation and Hygiene. And so when they go into a school or they'll go into a medical clinic, they'll put in a water access point, but they'll also build a latrine if there's no clean latrine around. And they'll also teach kids or adults or whoever's around how to take better, proper care of their hygiene. And so um, they'll teach them how to clean up when they go to the bathroom, how important it is to take a shower, how important it is to wash your hands uh, before you eat. And for uh, girls who are getting their period, they'll teach them about how to care for themselves uh, when they do that. So it's very comprehensive. It's one of the things that I really love about the WASH program. And that is just making huge inroads into disease control in Ethiopia and other places. One of the things that really concerned me when we got to Ethiopia was... um, that we would be riding around in these white land cruisers. They uh, had five of these that they picked our team up from the airport. Like I said, there were 15 of us. And so we rode around with these professional drivers from World Vision in these land cruisers. And I have been in, haven't been been to Haiti before and getting to see um, the that the UN rides in land cruisers like these. And people in Haiti don't universally love the United Nations. And so I've seen kids throw rocks at these vehicles. I've seen... Kids um, spit on these vehicles, and so I was a little worried that how conspicuous we would be in these. Um, and I want to tell you that people in Ethiopia love World Vision. <laughs> they love World Vision. We would drive down the road in these cars. There's five of us in a caravan, and you know, the first day we just noticed that we saw some kids working in the field, and we we waved at them, and they dropped their tools and they wave and they smile. And we found universally, if you wave at kids, you wave at adults, you wave at Teenage boys who don't stop for anything, uh, they will stop and wave and smile. And uh, our driver, Abraham, he's been a driver for uh, World Vision for 17 years. Abraham uh, said one day that uh, often kids will run behind the trucks waving, saying, My truck, my truck, because uh, World Vision has put a school in their community or they've brought water to their community, and these kids are so invested that they will chase down these cars. Now, the roads in Ethiopia, the reason you drive land cruisers is because the roads are pretty rough. They're mostly dirt, almost all dirt, and um, rutted. They have a rainy season every year, and ruts form in the road. And so you might be driving 30 miles an hour one minute, and then you have to stop to slow down to almost nothing to go over a pothole. And so uh, Abraham would tell us that sometimes kids will be running after these cars, chasing behind them, and all of a sudden the car will have to stop for a pothole, and the kid will smack into the back of the car. You know, World Vision's uh, taking care of children one kid at a time. Um <laughs> So we asked Abraham, because there's also, there's like farm animals crossing the road all the time. And we said, Abraham, how do you drive in that? I mean, how many animals have you hit? And he said, nope, in 17 years, none. never hit an animal. We said, Abraham, how many kids have run into your car? And he stopped for a minute. He goes, oh, I cannot count. (laughs) (laughs) They love world vision. Well, as I mentioned, uh, part of the purpose behind my trip was to draw attention to the sponsorship program at World Vision. And you guys were here a couple weeks ago. If you got to see World Vision, you know all about that. $39 a month, uh, get some incredible things. And we started sponsoring, we've sponsored, we sponsor three kids. Our family does. Uh, we started sponsoring uh, a new one through World Vision when I was preparing for this trip. Her name is Abebu. And one of the cool things was I got to meet Abebu in Ethiopia and spend some time with her in Shashogo And so Abebu is nine years old and um, her family is Muslim. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But uh, this was on the last day we were there, which is actually a Muslim holiday, Eid al-Fadr, which is the end of Ramadan. And so everybody went to mosque in the morning, and then about 10 o'clock in the morning, the streets were clearing. Uh, everybody walked back to their villages, and we got to go to the uh, village and pick up a babu and some of the other sponsored kids, and they came back to the program, and they had lunch with us, and we got to talk a little bit. Now, talking in Ethiopia is kind of tricky because... Uh, I speak English, uh, and that's pretty much the extent of my linguistics. Uh, we did bring an Amharic dictionary because Amharic is the national language of Ethiopia. But what we quickly found out is there are 83 people groups in Ethiopia that speak 83 different languages. And most of the kids especially don't speak Amharic. And so um, anytime we had a translator, we would have to have one translator to translate from uh idea her, her language into Amharic and then Amharic into English so it's pretty tricky it's kind of like playing telephone or telestrations if you play that game it's like does it kind of gets lost in the translation but I found out about her family I got to meet her father and just assure her father hey I'm not trying to be her dad you're her dad I'm just here to support you I'm here to give you what you want he was a lovely man and uh, we talked for a while but a baby didn't really want to talk because she's a nine-year-old girl and they don't really want to talk to an adult they don't know so what do we do we played and you know, we, got, we got balls out and we got bubbles out and we played with balloons and we, we got a ball and we played uh, the favorite sport in Ethiopia, which is, of course, no, not soccer. Volleyball. Can you believe that? Everybody plays volleyball in Ethiopia. I was shocked too. But we played volleyball for about a half an hour. We ran together. We did a, a 1K race together. And when I say ran together, I mean she ran about 300 yards ahead of me with her shoes off um, while I struggled to keep up. Um, all the kids there are amazing runners. Uh, And the cool thing was I got to see her take her first car ride uh, in the Land Cruiser. So a baby was a little bit nervous at first, riding in a car, never having done that before. But then she started to see some of her friends outside and she would wave at them and they were all pointing and waving. And she saw her mom going down the street and she's waving at her mom. Can you imagine being the mom of a kid who's got picked up by this car and you see him going down the street like, what's going on here, you know? Um, And so that was really neat to see that. Now, we had two sponsored kids in the car at this time, and uh, the other sponsored child didn't fare too well. She was sitting in the back center, and after about a half an hour drive over these bumpy roads, she got carsick in the back of the seat, back of the car. And so our car had to take a break to get washed out, which was not good, but um, it was a great experience getting to meet uh, our sponsored child. And the cool thing about the way World Vision does this is if you sponsor a child, you don't have to wait for a trip like this to go meet your kid. When you get your page set up, your sponsor page, there is a link, and you can click the link to go visit my child, and there's a donor liaison in every country that will help you set up a trip to go meet your sponsored child. It's really cool. So this can happen to you too. That's really neat. Um, The real cool thing about getting to meet sponsored kids is I realized that kids are the same everywhere you go. They just want to play. They want to have fun. They want to know more. They're very curious. They want to know more about you. So that was really cool. But maybe the highlight of my trip was in our last day in this program in Shishogo. We were getting ready to leave, and the pastor to the church that's right next door to World Vision came across, and he said, hey, my Sunday school kids have prepared something for you. I'd like you to come and see. And uh, some of the kids in the Sunday school class are World Vision sponsored children, and so we walk over to this church and we see this this choir of 50 kids. Now, what they're singing is "Kinga Jesus, a Kinga Praise to the king, Jesus, praise to the king. And I thought, man, there's kids on the other side of the world. It took me forever to get to Ethiopia. It's a 14-hour flight to Doha and then a six-hour flight to Kenya and then a two-hour flight to Addis Ababa to get to, and then a four-hour drive down to Shoshogo from Addis to get to see this. And there's kids on the other side of the world praising the same Jesus that we're praising here this morning. How cool is that? And there's 50 of these kids with their beautiful voices singing praise to the king, Jesus, praise to the king. And I was just completely convicted um, by something I had read in scripture just the day before. And it was from Matthew 25. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 25. I promise this won't take long. I know I just got here. But Matthew 25, it's page 695 in this Bible. I want to read something to you. But before, you do, before I do that, I want to read uh, this. Because I, I started when I got back kind of wondering like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I started rereading this book. Uh, This is a book by Seth Godin called What to Do When It's Your Turn. And I came across this and it says this. uh, There are so many opportunities, so many chances to find beauty or ease suffering that the easiest thing to do is to pretend that they don't exist. Because if they do exist, if that little girl will live a better life because you showed up, if that void would be filled because you cared enough to do something about it, if we actually recognize the opportunity that's in front of us, what are we to do about it? We have no choice but to change things for the better, to take our turn, and to make a difference. And I read that, and it really struck me. And I remember Jesus' words in Matthew 25, and I'll put them up here on the screen for you. He says this, Matthew 25. Um, this is starting with verse 31, I believe. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Let me just tell you, church, that's going to be a glorious day. He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And this is the verse that really stuck with me and it's one that I'm sure you've read before, but Matthew twenty-five forty says this, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And as I read that, there were two things that really stuck out to me. and maybe in a new light since my trip to Ethiopia. The first one is this. Um, Jesus calls those kids his brothers and sisters. Have you noticed that? That when I Oops. recite this verse and I do it a lot, what I'll say a lot of times is whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And I think a lot of us do that. But when we call people the least, we're, we're almost taking away their humanity. You know, we're saying, well, they're less than me. They're the least. But Jesus says, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And I went over and I looked these kids in the eye and I looked these dads in the eye and I see that they are brothers and sisters of Christ, just like we're brothers and sisters of Christ. And that really stuck out to me that there is something that we can do, like we would do for a brother or sister of ours. They're not a project they're not a problem to solve. They're brothers and sisters of Christ. And the second thing that stuck out to me about this verse is this. Jesus says, whatever you did, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So over the past month, I've been convicted. Some of you have been convicted. I know that we've presented a lot of opportunities for you to get involved, haven't we? Hey, serve in our kids' ministry. Serve in GSM. Hey, uh, sponsor a child. Go run a marathon for World Vision. Uh, Go with this new church plant, New Heights Church, which is going to be awesome. Uh, Bring school supplies for a backpack. And if we're not careful, we can get really overwhelmed and thinking, how am I supposed to do all of this stuff? Right? But what we're really doing is presenting opportunities for you. Jesus says, whatever you did. In other words, you don't have to do everything, but you need to do something you got to do something. I mean, the reason that God has given us all gifts and passions and talents and abilities and skills is so that we can use them to further his kingdom. And we don't have to use them in every area, but we need to use them somewhere. And I love what the other thing Seth Godin starts his book with. He starts it with this. He says, the thing is there's no easy way to do this. There's no simple way to quiet the noise in your head, no proven method to earn the respect and applause of your family and friends, no guaranteed approach that's gonna insulate you from heartache. This might not work. It might not be fun. I hope you'll do it anyway. And as I'm thinking about that in context of this verse, what we realize is that when we go and find the passion that God has given to us, the way to serve his kingdom that he has uniquely equipped us to do, and we go and pursue that, We'll get to hear one day, we get to hear Jesus say, come you who are blessed by my father and take your inheritance. Don't you wanna hear that? Do you wanna hear that someday? That day when Jesus arrives on his glorious throne, think about that day, just close your eyes and think about that day. When Jesus arrives on his glorious throne, if he were to come over to you and take you by the hands and look you in the eye and say, hey, come, my father has prepared a place for you. He's prepared an inheritance for you because you did what I asked you to do. How awesome will that be? Let's just pray together. God, I look forward, anxiously forward to that day. When I get to see you face to face and look you in the eye, and Lord, I want more than anything for you to say, come, come, look at the inheritance my father has prepared for you. Well done, good and faithful servant. You did what I asked you to do. And God, we know that our salvation, our place with you is not dependent on our works and what we do and what we don't do. But God, we also know that you have equipped each and every one of us and called us to do your work somewhere in the world. Whether that's through child sponsorship or running to raise money for clean water or going to help plant a new church or bringing school supplies or serving here on Sunday morning, Lord, you've equipped us all to do something unique and special and beautiful. And so I just pray that we would be faithful to that call. Lord, help us to answer when you call us and to know what to do when you ask us to go serve. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.